It has been a year. And while we were happy to bring you election coverage and take you all over the country with our special Future Fix episodes, it's time to come home and talk Toronto Transit. And we have just the panel to do it. This is Spacing Radio. Please stand by. All right. First of all, thanks everyone for joining me. We're just going to go around the circle and uh, introduce uh, each other uh, so everyone can put a sort of uh, name to the voice. So starting with you. Hey, I'm Matt Elliott. I am a City Hall columnist currently contributing to the Toronto Star. I also run a newsletter called City Hall Watcher. You can find out about that at cityhallwatcher.com. My name is Patricia Wood. I'm a professor of urban geography at York University, and I also write a column for spacing.ca. I'm Ben Spur, and I'm the transportation reporter for the Toronto Star. I wanted to get you guys all together because uh, I, I think uh, there's been a lot of transit news and it's been a little bit uh, swept under the rug just because we've been dealing with federal elections and all kinds of hoopla around that. Uh, but there have been uh, like major, <laughs> major doings uh, that I think we need to talk about, especially in the, the last council meeting in, in uh, October on, on the 29th there. So I wanted to begin with uh, kind of... Uh, the, the name on everyone's lips, uh, <laughs> ruefully or, or blissfully, is uh, the Ontario line. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of the last council meeting was, was about the Ontario line and, and uh, what that was and what the future of it will be. So, uh, you know, for listeners who, who don't know, it's, it's kind of Doug Ford's answer to the downtown relief line. He's got a, a, a similar but alternative plan, kind of same basic idea, but throwing out the old plan that we had been working on for years. So, uh, First of all, I wanted to ask everyone uh, what it means, because during the election, both the Liberals and the Conservatives had said, uh, you know, we'll, we'll back the Ontario line uh, if, if we come into power. So what does it mean now that uh, we have all three levels of government backing this uh, Ontario line? Uh, well, I don't know. I think one takeaway from that is just there's kind of cross-party, cross-ideological support for the idea that um, we desperately need to build some kind of new transit. And, um, you know, I think that, that, that that's been kind of brewing in, in Toronto for, for quite some time. Uh, but I think it is kind of notable that, uh, you know, across all the parties of, of different, um, as I say, different ideologies, that they, they're all backing this idea. There's no kind of disagreement about that. It's quite clear that we need to, that we're behind in building transit in Toronto and we need to do that uh, ASAP. Mm-hmm. And, and where does that money come from on the federal level? Or on the provincial level for that matter or right. from the city for that matter. I mean, we do have agreement right. now that everybody has agreed to support the Ontario line. We, we don't have a, a funded Ontario line yet. Right. And so when, when Trudeau says he supports the Ontario line, is that an existing envelope of funding that we're talking about? Or Yeah, in a way. I mean, part of the deal that... Uh, happened at the last council meeting was that for in exchange for supporting part of the deal was council agreed to support the Ontario line and also redirect federal funds that were earmarked towards the relief line to the Ontario line. So uh, some of these existing funds are not really existing. It's it's like it's funding for transit is always a little bit metaphysical, you know, like it exists (laughs) and doesn't exist and uh, defend some, there's committed funds and there's actual funds and when does it actually get in bank accounts? Who knows? But uh, this funding that, you know, was councils to direct to projects like the relief line is now directed to the Ontario line. The the way this has come kind of come about uh, in council was uh, this sort of uh, preliminary agreement that everyone debated and uh um i wanted to know everyone's take uh 
because there's there's kind of two ways that you could look at this. That one is that we were sort of backed into a corner uh, because we were threatened with uh, uploading of of all the uh, subway, all the subways uh, in the city. But there's another way to look at it that like this was kind of shrewd bargaining on the, on the part of the mayor and I, I guess the city manager to a certain extent, uh, where you know whatever the Ontario line is, we're going to get it and we don't really have to pay for a lot. Like we're getting a lot ostensibly for free if everything goes the way that it was sort of laid out in this preliminary agreement. Yeah, I think that's the that was kind of the the most surprising takeaway for me when that deal was announced because I I think it was um not super surprising that at the end of the day the province didn't want to take over ownership of the existing subway system, right? It's a huge price tag to actually maintain that over the next uh, couple of decades and uh you know, it, it's just a huge amount of money that the province would have to come up with to if it actually took ownership of the subway system. So, I wasn't surprised that they dropped that idea. Um but yeah, the the idea that the the city was kind of off the hook for paying for any of the new province's transit plans with with municipal funding was certainly a bit of a surprise. Um, and I think uh, you're right. You can argue that, that that's been a bit of a shrewd bit of bargaining there. The caveat to that, of course, is what are we as a city getting for out of the, the province? I mean, I think there's experts you talk to say that, you know, uh, the Ontario line certainly has a lot of merits to it. So there's a lot of details still to be filled in. But the rest of the plan, you know, uh, a three-stop Scarborough subway project that most experts say is much too expensive and, and shouldn't be built like that. <laughs> and an underground Eglinton East... Uh, to West LRT, I should say, that will also uh, be buried at a significant cost that uh, I don't think I've seen any clear evidence for. And then a subway extension uh, that will go outside of Toronto and put more people onto an already pretty crowded subway system. So the city's not paying for that, but the extent to which the city will benefit from those things, I think, is uh, up for debate. Right. I'm also not sure that the city negotiated itself out of the upload as much as the province negotiated what it really wanted and got the upload. The biggest problem about the upload was that they were going to upload decision making, right? We weren't really concerned about, it wasn't some kind of asset loss that we were really worried about. We were really worried about the city losing control uh, over its transit system, particularly decision making, exactly for the reasons that Ben's just talked about, that we were concerned about extending the Young Line before any kind of relief line was built, for example. So what we traded was all of the city's transit plans for the province transit plans. So we have agreed that the transit plans are set by the province now, apparently. So to me, that's the upload. Yeah, I think my take on this is, you know, given all the circumstances, this was... Uh, not a bad deal, a decent deal for the city. But the circumstances are not circumstances that we should accept. Like, this right. is not the way transit planning should happen. It shouldn't be that, you know, Doug Ford becomes the premier and all of a sudden it's like, let's, like, redesign everything. Let's, like, throw out millions of dollars of work just because there's a new premier in town. That doesn't matter what party, what ideology. That's, that's a bad way to handle transit planning, and it, it needs to stop. And every time something, an agreement like this happens, everyone decides, okay, this is it. This is going to be the transit plan. It's not going to change from here on out. And then it, it does. It always does. Uh, so I think the big concern that I have right now is just, I think, uh, the level of uncertainty has gone up a lot. The Ontario line, uh, you know, the relief line, uh, had its drawbacks. It was expensive. Uh, it's, was not going to open, uh, for a, a while. And um, they say the Ontario line can be open sooner, but the Ontario line is very, very, very early on. So you took a concept that was advanced to a certain point and you threw that out and then you went back, uh, to uh, square one in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways that were surprising. I think when we actually 
learned about the Ontario Line's alignment, people were really surprised to see how little of the relief line they were actually going to use for this project. Right. Um, and I want to talk about uh, known unknowns. And uh, I, I think, Trisha, you were kind of speaking to this uh, part of this uh, bargain, <laughs> if you call it that or not, is, um, you know, we're agreeing to something that we we're not, we don't totally understand. And, um, you know, part of this agreement is the, the province can sort of change the details and and we the city will really have no say. Uh, we've agreed in principle to a kind of general idea, uh, but uh, we really um, we we still not really in control of like what those lines will look like or the budget or the t- time frame. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about you know what what we don't know that the city actually agreed to. Uh, the numbers that I'm seeing right now is uh, that uh, the Ontario line is currently somewhere in between zero and 10% design, uh, probably closer to zero because it's a brand new idea, uh, you know, uh, and uh, the budget totals for the Ontario line are kind of, they're somewhere in between 9.5 billion and 11.4 billion, which is a pretty pretty different numbers when you get into uh, the accounting of it. Um, and then, yeah, you, uh, Matt, you mentioned, mentioned the timeline, uh, which is a very ambitious seven years from now or, you know, 2027, they think it's going to open. Uh, we'll see. But uh, yeah, can we talk about how much we don't know about this Ontario line plan and uh, what did we just agree to? <laughs> it's a really good question. When all of the documents went to city council, I tried to read my way through them. And what was interesting was there was so much cross-referencing that they were literally making it like physically difficult for you to understand what was going on. There'd be you know, um, one document that would say, as per the terms of this other one, and you'd have to go find the other document and then go back to the first one and finish reading that. And even if you did soldier on through all of that, and read all the different parts of it, it still wasn't entire, entirely clear what was being agreed to because there are things that are still open to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, the most significant shift is that the decision-making is largely in the province's hands now. And we agreed to that in exchange for getting, well, allegedly getting something built, but as you've noted, another big unknown is whether anything will get built at all, whether we'll be able to come to any kind of agreement about, you know, where the line is going to run above ground, below ground, through what neighborhoods, and whether we will uh, whether we will do that by 2027 isn't even a question. No, we will not have anything built by 2027. I, I don't know a single, you know, engineer or geographer who, who believes that for a second. Right. And will it cost what it's currently budgeted? No, absolutely it will not. All of the research says that, these things run over budget and rail lines more than anything. So what I also didn't see in the plan uh, that city council voted on uh, was where all the money was coming from. Because the federal, the current plans for federal investment in infrastructure partnering with the provinces, uh, there is no envelope that, that's this big yet. Right. So you're, you're, you're thinking even higher than the $11.4 billion projected. Probably, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do every time I get the chance. So I'll do it now for Spacing Radio listeners. Uh, if you are somebody who has some expertise and thinks the Ontario line can open in 2027, uh, please uh, write in. Uh, what is it? Glenn at Spacing Radio? Yeah, uh, yeah. Glenn Bowerman at Spacing.ca. There you yeah. go. Send an email to Glenn, uh, just uh, letting us letting him know that you are confident this can happen because I really want to talk to people who, who believe in this 2027 date. Uh, you know, it's not that, yeah, I'm skeptical of everything, but uh, yeah, just... Yeah, reach out. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I think what's kind of interesting is uh, the, you know, with the relief line, uh, you could pretty well in kind of envision what that was going to look like. Uh, it would be built by the TTC, it would look like a TTC subway. Um, the Ontario line is uh, going to be a kind of technology that we don't have in Toronto at the moment. We don't really know what it's going to be. But, you know, the provincial government says that that's the the plus of this thing is going to be uh you know smaller smaller trains easier to to build uh, infrastructure for you can build it faster and cheaper and all those kind of things but yeah it's just hard to understand uh, exactly what it's going to look like um, what the service will be how it will sort of integrate with the rest of the existing transit system so yeah i, I think even beyond the you know timelines and and budgets which are always an uncertainty there's actually uncertainty here about like what this actually is which is interesting is there a chance that this is like some kind of soup from a stone scenario that doug ford is orchestrating where if he just kind of puts it out there that everyone will chip in a little bit until hey you know what we actually did build something uh, i guess that's the optimistic <laughs> i'm just trying to play both sides <laughs> what 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 do we have to go on historically that might make us think that that were true not a thing okay yeah. I, do, I, do. I, I think the only part that might come to fruition is some kind of line between bloor and city hall mm -hmm. right because we do have plans for that right um i cannot see this entire line getting built actually probably at all um I'm even more skeptical perhaps than than you Matt. <laughs> you can rank but, each other on skepticism. but that part but that you know, there, there's been so much planning done. Uh, the planning on the relief line for that part was was pretty well advanced. Mm -hmm. um, that something could be done there, so right. that could happen. But but you know, will all of this happen? Uh, no. And and I, will any of it happen anytime soon? When we don't even know what the technology is. I actually started to wonder if whatever technology they might have had in mind had something to do with their decision suddenly to go above ground in a very unusual place that you probably wouldn't generally go above ground through is it through Leslieville mm -hmm. there yeah um, the but but given that we don't know what it actually is it's kind of hard to make a, a judgment on that this but. is the it's, this plan is very Doug Forty in the sense that a lot of it is a big bet on the private sector right like right. this is going to be we're going to bundle up all our requirements we're going to put out a contract and ask for bids on you know building this Ontario line so it almost seems like the province and Metrolinks are trying not to spec it in too much detail with the idea that maybe a private sector bid will come in that will just like blow everybody away with innovation mm -hmm. or whatever uh, and that is you know the look internationally and you say okay maybe like like the Canada line in Vancouver is an example of uh, a project that sort of followed this path and was, you know, opened on time at a reasonable cost. But I mean, that was 10 years ago and probably, you know, a, a lots of degrees less complicated than what we're talking about here. But yeah, it is definitely, you know, this idea of we're going to put this bit out, uh, this RFP out and hope that we get some responses that satisfy what we want. Mm -hmm. I want to transition now to the uh, a classic uh, transit debate, uh, the uh, the old chestnut uh, of the Scarborough subway, uh, the replacement of the RT there and what to do with it. We are now going back um, to a, a three-stop plan. Uh, it's going to take another two to three years is is the number that, uh, that I'm hearing. So uh, why can't we be done with this? <laughs> I'm so tired of talking about it, but we're going to. <laughs> I, I, there is actually an answer to that question, which is that the people who could most credibly 
argue for a sane plan, which would be really a return to the LRT plan for both lines, mm-hmm. would be the councillors in that area, and they're not on side. Right. And so there are other councillors who support a different plan, but they they can't argue quite as credibly because they're not from that area. Right. And so that kind of leaves us spinning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to point out, um, you know, I think a lot of debate has centered around the Ontario line for, for obvious reasons, because it's a very big project. But I think it is just, it's astounding. And I think it's a real indictment of uh, transit planning in Toronto and in Ontario that we've known for years and years and years when this existing Scarborough RT was going to stop working. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we don't have something ready to replace it uh, right when it, you know, it basically falls apart is just astounding. And I think a real, failure of uh, any kind of leadership um, from politicians at, at kind of all levels of government who have touched this issue. Um, you know, the, the RT is going to stop unless they find some way to extend its life, which they might. But even even that is, I think, a, a not an ideal solution. Uh, you know, this thing's going to shut down and then we're going to have a situation where there's actually like less transit in, in this growing city than there was uh, a couple of years ago. And just maybe people stuck on riding buses um, for extended periods of time until someone builds something there. But yeah, I think it's a really sorry state of affairs. That's a great point. And I do think it's, you know, a lot of the reason Toronto transit debates have gone the way they have and, you know, took the twists and turns they have is because politicians uh, kept talking about how we got to be fair to Scarborough. We got to give Scarborough the transit it deserves. We got to do transit for Scarborough. Scarborough deserves subways, all of these these slogans. And now somehow this has led to Scarborough getting screwed with a three-year delay on what they already, and like a three-year delay on on the subway. If you go back to the Scarborough LRT, which they were planning to open for the Pan Am Games in 2015, like Mm -hmm. this is going to be a a 15-year delay. And I really am interested see what the political response will be when or if, but probably when the Scarborough RT encounters troubles and needs to uh, be shut down, you know, our politicians are just going to say, oh, wow, surprise. Like they, they knew this was coming for a very, very long time, like Ben said. Well, I think Ben also makes a really good point, too, that within probably just a very few years, Scarborough is actually going to have less than mm-hmm. it has now. Right. And some of us have been concerned about exactly that. Right. For years. Um, and I think part of it too, which is reflected even in, in this larger discussion here is that the discussion on transit and improving transit seems to have all become oriented towards the future, sort of well in the future. So we only talk about like these, you know, these big projects that will be built eventually. And we only talk about improving transit in Scarborough really on that scale. Like, is it going to be LRT or subway or, you know, anything? Mm -hmm. And we're not really doing enough on a more immediate, small scale, um, you know, way that could improve transit in Scarborough and other, other places in the city, Mm -hmm. um, quite significantly at, at not very much expense, but we don't seem to have that kind of real, you know, transit conversation we have the speculative conversation or the speculative mega project conversation seems to dominate the -hmm. transit discussion we had the king street pilot you know and we've all said okay great huge success and now it's permanent and the next one is crickets right how much longer can the relevant you know (laughs) the 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 various uh scarborough city councillors uh continue to be elected or re-elected on this kind of beautiful fiction At, at what point do the people of Scarborough, uh, you know, say, well, where's where's our transit? 
you you know you kept saying that you were going to fight for the best possible thing for us and i'm not going to miss an opportunity to say i told you so to the haters on twitter who said that the only pro- the proponents of uh, of a scarborough lrt just didn't care about scarborough it was because everyone cared about scarborough and the future there that they said like let's actually build this feasible plan that would serve a lot of priority neighborhoods and yeah like everyone's saying they're they're stuck with nothing so how long does the same trick work well i th- i think you know, I think the political calculus is such that, uh, you know, a politician who promises to eventually build the kind of, you know, gold standard of a three-stop Scarborough subway, um, and, you know, I use that term um, advisedly, I guess, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that uh, anyone who promises that it will come out on top of, of anyone who promises anything less, even if it means people being stuck on buses for a while. Because the, the, I think there's this this, this idea that, you know, it's a, it's politics rather than transit planning, right? It's this idea that um, Scarborough has been, uh, you know, given the cold shoulder by the rest of the city for so long that they deserve to be given this, uh, this you know, this mega project that that is big and expensive and that is seen as, the, you know, uh, nothing else will do. Um, and I think that's still a viable message for a lot of people. And, and to be fair, I don't think it's just politicians. I think some people in Scarborough would say that, that they, you know, they want the subway. And even if they have to wait for it, then they'd, they'd still prefer to go that path than to, to accept what they what has been politicized to the extent that it's considered second class transit, something like an above ground rail line, which, you know, experts say would serve the area um, perfectly well. Yeah, I do think that there is, I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, the subway in Scarborough was popular with, uh, you know, people in Scarborough to a degree. But I also think politicians who felt like they had to back the subway or they could never win election in Scarborough, that was based more on, I think, sort of cowardice or timidity than, mm-hmm. you know, actual uh, real on the ground uh, talking to the people. Because you look at a guy like Councillor Paul Ainsley, who, you know, uh, supported the LRT. He's represented Scarborough for years. It didn't cost him, you know, any votes that I saw for that position. Right. And, you know, who are the politicians that lost seats because they supported the Scarborough LRT over the Scarborough subway? You know, if there are any, I can't think of them now. Uh, so I do think that, you know, there is room in Scarborough for people to come in and be straight with people and say like, yeah, you know, like all of us love the idea of having a subway if money was no object and time was no object. But, you know, these are the circumstances. And honestly, like uh, Trisha said, like we are looking, we need somebody who's going to talk about buses in Scarborough, you know, how to improve that because that's all that's going to happen over the next 10 years. Right. The other problem, of course, though, is Bill 5. So with only 25 wards now, it's become extremely difficult, if not impossible, to knock out an incumbent. For listeners, the, the Bill 5 was the, the big debacle last summer uh, or summer of 2018, where uh, the city council seats were slashed in half. Yeah. So I think the goal of Scarborough residents needs to be to change the minds of existing councillors. Um, I think hoping for people to uh, defeat incumbents now is, uh, is is quite a pipe dream. You know, no, it, it just really has. You've got very large wards. Um, it's very, very difficult for a newcomer to come in and, you know, make enough connections and raise enough money and just learn, you know, in detail that much of the city uh, to defeat an incumbent. I, I don't see that as very likely. Yeah. And uh, another casualty of this new round of seemingly endless transit plans is uh, is uh, the um, 
the Eglinton East LRT extension. Uh, it was going to be uh, an extension into Scarborough uh, from the Eglinton Crosstown, which is one of the few things that is actually, uh, God willing, in the creek don't rise, going to be built. <laughs> and we're going to see it and be able to ride it. Uh, and, you know, uh, th- there was an idea that that should be extended all the way into Scarborough and serve uh, uh, the U of T Scarborough campus. Uh, it-, it was part of a sort of called a compromise between John Tory and uh, the chief planner at the time, Jennifer Keysmat, uh, where, you know, it's, it mm. seemed like no, there were these factions and no one was really able to budge that much one way or the other. And so Tory and Keysmat kind of came up with this, um, this solution that is like a bit of smart track and kind of a subway to Scarborough, but also some good LRT things that would actually serve the places that people needed to get to. Um, and that seems to be just gone like the, that just doesn't seem like it's going to go down yeah the, actually the the mayor and some others at city hall have taken the, what i find a fairly perplexing uh stance on that project um even before this deal when it kind of became clear that there was not going to be enough money to build that the mayor would say things like well we have enough money to put i believe he actually used the exact words a down payment on on uh, a project on that project but that's not how but that that's where we're at again now with this deal where you know the city's not paying for any of the province's uh, new transit lines um and they say that that frees us up to uh, you know to vote uh, funding towards projects like the Eglinton East LRT or the Waterfront LRT which are both like uh, pretty uh, badly needed projects but it's not enough money so i it's sort of a strange selling point of this deal that um because you can't just sort of pay on the installment plan or whatever right like you need some kind of firm commitment to get things built and then that's i think one of the other drawbacks potentially of the of the deal right um with the province that they're not going to fund anything else besides their own plan and so we're sort of the the city's on its own um to pursue projects that it's already identified as priorities uh whereas money from other levels of government is not going to go towards projects that uh were not identified as priorities by the city's own experts and speaking of that i just want to make uh clarify something because uh, i was re-watching the the council debate where they talked about this um they kept referring to to actual provincial legislation that says that the city cannot uh work on a similar project while you know we're debating the ontario so like while we're talking about the ontario line the city can't do any work on their version of the relief line and while we're talking about the three-stop scarborough subway we can't talk about the one stop we have we're legally uh, as per provincial legislation, not allowed to consider other options. Really, is that is that a fair way to mm-hmm. characterize it? As I understand it, the, the part of the upload that did happen is that the province is going to own all new transit lines right. in Toronto. So, yeah, if you're talking about the Eglinton uh, East LRT or West LRT or anything else, you know, you would need to involve the province in that. And presumably, if the city was to kick in money, they would be giving money to the province for the province to plan and design that line. And the province has its priorities right now, and that's not one of them. So this is sort of the downside to, you know, any part of the upload is suddenly the city can find itself a bit like a a bystander to its own transit system, right? Like it's, you can be involved and you can urge the province to do things, but your powers are, are limited by legislation. Yeah, my understanding of how the legislation works is, I think it, I think you're right. It's, it's basically that the province has control, but it, the the way that they do it is that the legislation says they can designate any new any transit project as a provincial project, uh, and so if they designate a project as a provincial project, that means the city has to stop working on it. Right. Um. So I'm, I think the city could pursue its own plans, assuming if the province allowed it to. 
but at any moment the province could say no that's a provincial project and you have to stop work on it but then there's also the fact that um the, T the ttc who hadn't been planning transit projects in toronto has shifted resources all, a lot of consultants and i believe uh, they're in the process of moving actual staff as well uh from the ttc to metrolink so the capacity of the city to do its own planning work i think is diminished by this whole process yeah and i also think it's important to remember that you know we're talking 23 billion in subway and transit related maintenance work that the city needs to figure out a way to pay for so this really frustrated me when they were talking about the deal is because uh, you know the mayor and others were saying well with the money that's freed up by us not having to contribute to the ontario line the scarborough subway we can look at other projects and it's like no you got this this giant maintenance bill and you know how are you going to tackle that because it doesn't make sense to be looking at building new transit if the existing transit is going to fall apart uh, simultaneously. Well, this is the thing. It's not really a comfort, but it is true that the Eglinton East LRT was already dead before the province got involved with the upload and, and changing of plans. Right. Um, I'm not even sure how long the compromise really lasted because it was pretty clear well, in less than a year in terms of estimates of funding that that there was no money for the Eglantine East LRT. But that, I think, exposes a larger question, which I think Ben and Matt have touched on, which is that like, the province is not really helping us on some key issues like operating funding. Mm -hmm. um, but even if, you, even if you take the province out of it, the city is not exactly, you know, covered itself in glory on transit planning either. Uh, we don't have... Uh, you know, champions of sensible transit planning at the municipal level, by and large, either uh, in terms of leadership anyway. So, you, you know, it's kind of hard to, I, I'm not in favor of, of anything that the province is really doing for the most part. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know, maybe the, if I think hard, there might be something I like about it, but neither am I really excited, you know, by, by the city's leadership on this. I think there've been failures all around and this really just exposes that, you know, if this seems better, it's only because where we've been has been so bad for so long. Right. This is a very cheery conversation Isn't we're it having. Bad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> so Scarborough takes the bus. <laughs> Scarborough takes the bus. Okay, so I, I want to move on to uh, something separate but, but related. Uh, and there's been a lot of big news, uh, <laughs> a lot of talk about it, uh, a lot of broken stories. Uh, and Ben, you, you've broken a lot of these stories. Uh, you've been really covering this beat. Um, so we're talking about Presto. Uh, and uh, I was hoping you could kind of just uh, begin by laying out the history of Presto. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, Can you do it in 30 a seconds? Brief, a brief history. Uh, you know, because I, I think uh, a lot of people might be surprised to know that, uh, you know, this was not any municipality in Ontario's choice, really. Uh, Toronto, the TTC, were they were kind of developing their own uh, new kind of fare system and their own card. And uh, the, as I understand it, the province had this idea that they would develop their own card technology. It would be proprietary and they could maybe like, you know, sell it to other people to use. And that would be some kind of revenue source. Probably not going to work out that way because it is very buggy. And uh, I think you can sort of speak more to that. 
Yeah, so I, this is before my time reporting on the transit beat, but uh, so yeah, back uh, in 2011, I believe it was, the TDC was in the process of, uh, you know, finally getting rid of uh, tickets and tokens and developing its own electronic fare card system. The province, uh, as you say, developed their own um, uh, system and basically foisted it on the city and said that unless you take this, uh, we're going to, uh, uh, your gas tax funding that you've received from the province is going to be at risk. So the TDC really didn't have much choice and decided to, um, to take it on. In theory, there are perhaps some benefits to all the municipalities in the Toronto area having the same fare card. It, it uh, could enable some goals like fare integration where you can use you know one one card to travel on all different um, uh, uh, transit systems, which is a good idea as the city becomes more kind of uh, integrated with the municipalities around it. Um, but yeah, as you say, it um, started off when it really began to be rolled out on the TTC with some, some pretty serious um, problems the extent to which that's kind of extraordinary, you know, is debatable because obviously any new system is going to have some issues and they have made the devices more reliable, but um, it's still at a point where the, uh, you know, the auditor general of the city has, has raised the fact that uh, basically the, the TTC is losing millions and millions of dollars um, uh, each year because of faulty Presto devices. What's I think even more troubling to some extent than the, um, uh, than the dollar figure it's just the way in which the, the TDC and Metrolinks are kind of cooperating or, or not necessarily cooperating over this. Um, what I find kind of striking is uh, things like, uh, you know, the TTC has invoiced Metrolinks for what it says is lost revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metrolinks has basically said not much, in, in, at least officially. They, they say that they haven't seen any evidence really that they owe the TDC money for this. Um, even like Stranger, I think in that Auditor General's report was things about how Metrolinks has been like taking, uh, making unauthorized withdrawals from a TTC. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. Can anyone Again? explain that? Because that's a really weird part of this story. Uh, I, it, Metrolink says it's justified. It says that there's um, uh, basically been work that Metrolink has done for the TTC and it's owed money for the work. And so, it, uh, you know, the, the exact how another agency has the ability to tap into a bank account, I don't really yeah. understand. I have but, plenty of outstanding invoices, but I'm not allowed <laughs> yeah. to just go and break into the cash register. It's basically like, direct deposit <laughs> yeah. with each other or something. And so, and so I should say, you know, TTC and Metrolink both say that their their working relationship is fine, um, that they that they are cooperating, but it, it just seems I, i'm it, it's odd to me that um you know the ttc does not own the fare system that it operates that is its you know only source of revenue effectively right you know it just it just uh is not i think an arrangement that anyone would have like drawn up from the start and said this is uh, a, a great idea so yeah it's just the kind of interaction between uh metrolinks the provincial agency and the ttc over the, over the fare card system i think is uh a thing that's going to play out for a while to come. And when you talk about money being lost uh, because of this sort of buggy system, uh, no one's really sure exactly how much, but the estimate for last year was somewhere around $3.4 million, which... Yes, that's chunk. right. And, and, and interestingly, though, the auditor general, who you know is an expert in this kind of thing, uh, said that she couldn't figure out exactly how much money the TCC had lost because the controls over the system 
are are so um, lax. Right. Um, you know, there's the the famous story already of of uh, basically machines getting filled up with coins and no one emptying them, and therefore, you know, who you decide is responsible for a problem like that, it's gonna it's gonna stop people from paying. So the TDC is losing revenue, but is it the driver of the streetcar who didn't notify people that the thing was full of coins? Is it the contractor who made the coin machine? Are they responsible for it? Or is it Metrolinks that that bought the coin machine in the first place? So Again, it's just it. It just seems like any time when there's this uh, different agencies in, in control of the same thing, it, it allows people to kind of point fingers at everyone else, and and obviously the the public is the one that uh, is going to deal with the uh, ramifications of that. All right, thoughts on Presto? Well, first of all, it it is extremely unusual that the TTC doesn't own its own fare system. Um, I can only find one or two other examples of that anywhere. Quebec City doesn't own its own because it uses Montreal's fare card and Ottawa also uses the Presto card. Every other major city in the world um, has control over its own uh, transit card or fare card. Uh, Tokyo, in a weird way, is an exception because of the private interest there. But, you know, in terms of comparable cities, it's an unusual situation. And I think it does produce exactly the kind of complications around coordination that we've observed that Ben mentioned. But even even with all the other things that we might expect, you know, new system, there are going to be bugs in the rollout. This is still unusual. This has been a few more years of difficulties than we might expect. Um, and I think this has also been, it's been a very slow rollout in terms of adoption. It was really only recently um, with the TTC saying they were going to stop selling uh, tokens and tickets. Well, the DTC saying again that they were going to stop selling it. I think they really mean it this time. It's in a few days. Right. Um, and, and the introduction of the two-hour transfer, I understand, uh, made a difference. That's actually when I finally got a Presto card. Right. Um, but the take-up was extremely slow by passengers, and that's odd because it should do exactly as Ben suggests. It should make it easier for people to use. It should make it easier for people to use to travel throughout the region because the GO system and a lot of municipalities in the region also use the Presto card. And yet people were not interested. And I think one of the other failures of the Presto system in the city of Toronto is that it has not been used really as an incentive it's been used, not, maybe not quite in a punitive way, but in every, the sort of the messaging or in before the two-hour transfer, the messaging around Presto and fares in general was a sense of, you know, first of all, the passengers just sort of pay their own way. There's been a huge campaign around fare evasion at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's a really weird thing to do as you're introducing a new fare system. Um the, uh, the TTC has not been able to uh, maximize the same incentive programs that Go uses, where you have monthly fare capping. Mm -hmm. uh, inst instead, we still have an, uh, an extraordinarily high cost uh, monthly pass system that you can only buy at the beginning of the month. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I mean? Like it, it's it's a very unsuccessful rollout as compared to other fare card rollouts around the world, not just for technical issues, but also for the whole kind of language around it. It's very unfriendly. Right. Yeah, I think two things I want to say about the Presto system. Uh, ben mentioned, you know, the TTC was going to pursue its own uh, smart card, fair card thing in, you know, the early part of this millennium. Um, and what they were actually looking at was just to, like, talk to a credit card company and say, like, set us up so people can just tap their debit and credit cards on mm -hmm. the readers and pay that way. 
And if the TTC had done that and the response was pretty positive to what they were looking at, uh, they would have like skipped ahead of almost every other major transit system right. on in the Western world because that's finally where you know New York and Chicago and other uh, transit agencies are getting to is not this big proprietary complicated technology thing that you know the transit agency uh, owns or you know pays a lot of money for, but rather uh, you just use the cards you use to pay for everything else. Uh, right. So you know that's a huge lost opportunity. And instead, it's been the Presto system they've spent you know I think uh, you know more than a billion dollars on mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, so lots of money. Uh, the second thing I want to say is this auditor general report that the city had done on the Presto system is hilarious for some of the stuff they found in there. Like Ben mentioned the, the coin boxes on the streetcars being full. And to be clear, like some of them were full for like more than a week. And when the coin box is full, like nobody can use them to pay fares on the streetcar. And it's like, how did nobody put this together and say, like, uh, we got we to gotta solve this problem by emptying the coins out of this machine into a bucket or something. Right. And then you're all good. You solved the problem. Uh, so that's in there. There's stuff like how they were only, like, pinging the machines to see if they were working, like, every 15 minutes at various points, which... Uh, is why the auditor couldn't really put a figure on how much fare has been lost due to broken fare readers because, you know, at rush hour when you have hundreds of people theoretically passing through a streetcar or a a turnstile or whatever, uh, you know, and you're not checking to see if the device is working except every 15 minutes, you might be missing a lot of uh, malfunctions and stuff like that. So, and I think that tracks because, you know, I'm a big data guy. I like the numbers. But when you look at, you know, the data that, you know, we're getting from the Presto system versus, you know, you talk to transit riders about how often they see uh, broken Presto machines. And I think it has gotten a little bit better. But still, you know, when you talk to transit riders who take transit every day about how often they encounter these things, it's not uh, infrequent. It's it's very frequent. Mm-hmm. They had to be publicly shamed, too, into putting in uh, machines for topping up that took cash. You may remember initially yeah. it was all going to be credit and there are a lot of people who would immediately not be able to take the system and then they quietly put them in. I don't remember any announcement about it. They were just <laughs> suddenly there. Mm. Um, I mean, ev- yeah, everything about it. Yeah, it's, 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 it'd be hard to, you know, come up. It, it almost reads a bit like a farce, like this report mm-hmm. from the Auditor General about just all of the things that they found and couldn't understand or couldn't explain about the way they designed the system. So it, it's impressive in a way that right. they managed to, to make so many mistakes with, with one product. Uh, but Trisha, you, you mentioned uh, the, the two-hour uh, hop-on, hop-on kind of thing. Uh, hop-on, hop-off, rather. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's something that a, like a card system allows us to do. But uh, what I saw when I was just trying to check out what people have been saying about Presto uh, on, on the old tweet system, uh, Steve Monroe, who transit followers are probably aware of, uh, he, he was saying that, uh, you know, Metrolinx is actually charging uh, the city for features like adding on, uh, you know, the hop on, hop on, hop off system, uh, when that was always supposed to be part of the original agreement. So we're, they're kind of charging the city twice. Uh, is that something that people are tracking? Or yeah, there's a dispute right now about you know whether where 
presto in the TTC are in terms of their agreement that they came to in 2011. And that includes things like open payments, which was, you know, like I said, being able to pay with your debit and credit card. That's mm-hmm. something presto has promised in a next generation version of the system. Uh, TTC is still asking, hey, where is that? Presto is sort of saying, you know, uh, maybe it's coming, maybe it's not. I mean, they're, they're saying it's coming now. But, you know, there's been a lot of having to track them down to get them to actually deliver on some of the stuff that they promised the TTC initially. I'm pretty sure that somewhere around 2011, maybe even earlier, we were promised that that was coming any minute, um, being able to use a credit card. And that's what most systems, like London already has that. And it Mm. doesn't replace the Oyster card and it doesn't even replace, you know, being able to get fare through cash. I think the successful systems, you know, add more forms that are convenient without dropping the others. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they've been promising. Like Presto's made all kinds of promises. Uh, If you keep digging back, it's like it has no bottom. And um, if you go back years and years and years. Yeah, I think, I mean, that those those uh, functionalities are like written into the original 2011 agreement, um, which I think it's important to note that TDC has been paying for, like according mm-hmm. to those, the terms of that agreement, every time you tap your Presto card, the TDC pays Metrolinx a portion of that fare. Right. Uh, so so the city has basically been paying the, the province uh, for this fare card system that that they're saying, basically, look, you haven't lived up to the agreements of, of the contract that we signed back in 2011. And they're actually, last I heard anyways, and I don't think there's been any developments on this, but they're basically in arbitration now that they're uh, trying to f- get some third neutral party to, to rule over whether or not Metrolinx has actually lived up to the terms of the deal. Well, this is kind of where we're stuck, right? You know, that, that everybody on, on all sides seems to be, you know, counting pennies because, especially on the TTC side, right, uh, the system is so starved that I think the TTC feels, not incorrectly, I suppose, that they really can't afford to encourage ridership, mm-hmm. you know, if it's going to come at the cost of two-hour transfers or, or, or you know, a monthly capping system. And so the whole language, which has shifted for quite a while, really, but is around, you know, covering costs rather than maximizing service and maximizing ridership. And that's a really unusual and, per- I would argue, unproductive way to be talking about transit. Right. So uh, I know that this is maybe an unfair question for anybody, but just what went so wrong? I mean, uh, other other municipalities all over the world have made some kind of you know comparable card system, fare card system, uh, and it, I don't think that there's been this much pain and heartache. <laughs> uh, do we know what the problem was? I, I do think the like interjurisdictional thing is is an issue, right? Where you have one entity operating the, the network um, with it, and it has its own priorities and interests, and then you have another entity of a different level of government owning the the fair card system. And I think that's just bound, and and I think it has been demonstrated. I think to to have these gaps where um, you know it's not clear exactly who is responsible for problems, and that that means that it, it takes longer to fix. So. Yeah. And the initial contract went to Accenture, the, a company that sort of does all kinds of stuff, but isn't necessarily like a, they're not like a, somebody who makes fair cards for systems around the world. They're just a company that bids on contracts and, and does things. Um, so, you know, there probably is a better alternative reality out there somewhere where instead of going that route, they had just said, okay, let's look at, you know, Hong Kong or London or a place that has a fair card technology and went to going to them and saying, hey, can we buy this or, mm-hmm. you know, use this, uh, adapt something that another city has already tested and used. Uh, there's a tendency with stuff like this to want like a, a unique bespoke 
uh, solution, you know, a made in Canada, made in Toronto, made in Ontario solution. And I think sometimes it's be better to just stick with what's proven to work in other places. I think there are two places, two sort of big forks in the road where things went wrong. Mm -hmm. The first is Metrolinks was initially invented to be a kind of regional transit agency and it had municipal elected representation. Mm -hmm. Um, And out of that, really is where transit city planning and the LRT plans came from. I mean, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's sort of the same, the same moment. And then the then liberal government provincially uh, decided to change the way Metrolinx was organized. And it went from being uh, really an arm's length in terms of the provincial government, an arm's length agency that was really run collectively by the municipalities and supported by the province to something that was not arm's length, that became more politicized, that was brought entirely into the provincial government, mm-hmm. and, and that doesn't function as well. And and that makes sense that it doesn't function as well because, you know, that's not a good way to do regional transit governance. And there's very few cities that do. Usually regional transit governance is, is what Metrolinx, a little closer to anyway, what Metrolinx was in the first place. So that shift led to exactly the kinds of things that that Ben and Matt have been talking about. Um, in terms of, you know, the intergovernmental difficulties and so on. And the other fork in the road is Rob Ford and mm-hmm. then his brother. And I don't think it's a coincidence that's the, the two of them. Um, and it's not just that, you know, Rob uh, tore up Transit City. Um, and it's not just that Doug Ford wanted to, you know, upload. It's, you know, it's not just the disruption of it. It's 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 the politics that they represent, which is really a politics of... Um, you know, of government not investing in the public sphere. And one of the trickiest parts about transit, um, we, we know we need it for so many reasons, but it it involves the public sphere, at least as it's currently, you know, constituted in, in Toronto. And there's a real effort on the part of um, provincial and city governments, you know, to try and see how much can we transfer to the private sector? How much can we get them to pay for if they get something else out of it? And then we really often turn ourselves, tie ourselves into knots, figuring out how they can get something right. out of it. But that that politics has led us to, you know, talk about transit in a really unproductive way and in a heavily politicized way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once you turn something into a political football, it's very, very hard to get it back. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about the 2011 uh, agreement that was signed about Presto. Uh, I was actually there uh, that day as, as a, a Humber student journalist. Uh, uh, and so two things were signed uh, that, that day. It was uh, the contract talking about Presto with the city between the city and Metrolinx. Uh, but that was also the day that uh, we signed a master agreement about, uh, you know, the Scarborough LRT. Um, so you were talking about... Um, you know, the, now the city's going to maybe be in arbitration with Metrolinks, that kind of thing. But I, I do kind of wonder: does the city really have like a moral position to to be uh, uh, outraged about uh, you know undelivered promises on the side of Presto when we kind of backtracked on our own, uh, you know, half of the uh, the master agreement that was signed that same day? I don't know. I think they're. Well, I guess two things. One, I would say, uh, you know, both the city and the province have flip-flopped on on Scarborough plans. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, any moral high ground there, I think, is, is lost for either side. But I do think the, press, the situation is unique in the sense that, I mean, 
you know, it was a decision that was made the TTC under duress. I mean, it really didn't have much um, uh, ability to to resist uh, taking on the system. So I think if the province does that, then they have the obligation to make sure that it functions properly. And I mean, it's just regardless of fairness to the TTC, just, you know, fairness to the public. They have the responsibility to make sure the transit system collects revenue fair, fairly. So, right. um, yeah, so I, I think the onus is on, on them, I think, to, to make sure this system works. Yeah, I think if you're, you're looking for heroes in Toronto transit planning, they, uh, there are not a lot of them. No. So, uh, you know, I would agree generally that, you know, you can sort of ascribe uh, villainous behavior to both sides of sure. this for sure. But I do think uh, with the Presto thing, I mean, the city was backed into a corner. I do think it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if Toronto had a mayor at the time that really dug heels in and said, you know, we're not taking presto you know unless we see some demonstration of functionality or whatever i don't know how that would have gone i mean presto without toronto is not much of a, a system uh, when you look at where the actual transit riders are in the gta uh but you know at the other hand maybe the province would have stuck in too so yeah I, like ultimately i think we've learned that you know, when it comes to city versus province battles the province has the power and mm-hmm. the city uh gets screwed around sometimes and uh, finally, uh, there's a bit of a weird one that's just recent. Uh, we, we were talking as we kind of settled in here uh, that uh, Metrolinx is uh, sort of attempting uh, to proactively uh, promote the Ontario line that we had been talking <laughs> about and uh, how successful it will be, uh, very interestingly, using uh, social media Instagram influencers. And I believe there's a hashtag as well. What was that hashtag? Metroli- MX for Metrolinx, it's happening, or is it it's happening Metrolinx? Yeah, MX, it's happening. MX, yeah. it's happening. How do we feel about a provincial transit agency uh, sort of uh, stumping for uh, uh, what is currently at 0% first, uh, design? First of all, I'm mad I was not approached because, oh, yeah. you know, I'm all over the gram uh, and I could be doing <laughs> some great uh, photos and snaps or, or whatever with some filters. Um, so, but no, seriously, uh, don't don't contact me, Metrolinks. I will not do it for you. Uh, but it is, it is weird. Like, uh, I get a transit agency like Metrolinks doing some advertising, having a marketing budget. You could you know, they advertise things like, hey, kids can ride, go for free now. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to advertise. So parents know. But the thing there is that they can go and ride for free today. Like, that's the thing that's happening now. Right. Advertising a transit plan that isn't uh, going to happen until 2027, most optimistically, uh, is weird because what are they asking the people who see these ads to do with that information? Yeah, I just think the whole idea, I mean, maybe this just shows my age, but the the whole idea of like social media influencing, I think is an ethically interesting one, right? Because it, it does kind of uh, blur the line between, I, I mean, I don't know if there's a difference between paying like a famous person to, to extol the virtues of a product to paying like a less famous person on social media to do it. I don't know. But it just kind of blurs the lines between someone's own personal opinion, I guess, and their um uh and and paid advertising. But I think what what is kind of interesting about this case in particular is that you could look at some of these social uh, media posts and say, oh, here's a local resident who who really likes the Ontario line, whereas we know that there has been substantial opposition to the details of the, you know, that have been released about the Ontario line. Lots of people are concerned about how it will cut through uh, Leslieville and that surrounding area. And, uh, you know, possibly it'll be overground. So it will be more disruptive, presumably, than the old relief line plan. So, yeah, I think it does. I think Metrolinx is wading into some tricky waters here where they they could 
be perceived as trying to make it look as though locals are more supportive of the project than they are. Right. Uh, however, they, they say that that's not at all the case. They're just trying to reach a, a new demographic uh, of, uh, of people that can't be reached by, uh, you know, more traditional forms of advertising, which I imagine is probably the case. It's, it's probably uh, if you want to reach young people, social media is the place to go. Whether or not this is the, uh, you know, most um, proper way to do it, I guess, is, is uh, something to, to discuss. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd go even farther. If they're trying to reach, uh, I mean, who are they trying to reach? Like, you know, high schoolers, university age, are those the same people who have been actually specifically targeted in fair evasion presto checks recently? Yes, right. they are. So I'm not persuaded at all that that's what Metrolinx is trying to do. Um, I'm all in favor of campaigns that champion, you know, riding transit. Right. That's not what this is. No. This is not something that exists. So they're not trying to get people to ride the Ontario line. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get people to support it. The only purpose of this campaign can be political. And that is not something an independently, well, an allegedly, I should say, an allegedly independent agency should be doing. This, right. this can, it doesn't exist. This can only have a political purpose. And that's not appropriate. And it's doubly not appropriate to use, you know, advertising sources where people are not going to be 100% sure if the information is someone who's been paid to say it or whether it's an ordinary individual saying it because they, you know, they really like it and they're really in favor. And I think they've chosen social media precisely because it will be unclear (laughs) and they are hoping that it will look more authentic, more grassroots. It will make it look like, you know, well, the city's on side. So Leslieville opponents, you know, go home. Right. So uh, I guess uh, just as a final thought, what's everyone's, uh, (laughs) what's everyone's selfie going to be with this hashtag? (laughs) I'm going to be like shrugging really big. Yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> IMAX, it's happening, question mark. <laughs> I'll take a picture of myself on an abandoned, you know, very cold Go platform. You okay. know, when I've been waiting for a train that doesn't arrive. My parents live out in the in the suburbs. And With I, just I take a the lonely Go plastic shelter. <laughs> I mean, I really hope, actually, if you talk about like what's actually happening on, you know, I associate Metrolinx when you talk about actual lines, actually, with the Go system, not not the rest of it. You know, if people actually take that up to talk about what indeed is happening, you know, Metrolinks that we'd like you to hear about, I suspect it won't all be rah-rah, the Ontario line. Okay. And your selfie? Well, I couldn't possibly make an editorial comment. <laughs> uh, but I would just, I'm just curious about, like, will that hashtag take off? Uh, like, it's interesting. Like, I, I wonder, again, shows my age. I wonder how much these things are effective. Like, you know, this, uh, the one, Leslieville one, you know, got like a thousand something likes, which is great. But are people liking it because... The social media influencer in uh, this case was holding her like really cute baby and right. uh, <laughs> are they reading the caption? Look great in the shot. Yeah. So you know. Uh, so who knows? Uh, yeah, I'd be interested. to Metrolink seems to think this is effective, but yeah, I'd be curious to know. You know how many minds and hearts it captures. Okay, I think I've settled on mine, and I'm going to do one of those uh, a second every day things that people do. <laughs> but it's going to be every day that we wait for the Ontario line to be built. And, uh, <laughs> so that's going to be my selfie. Uh, I want to thank you guys all for <laughs> taking the time to speak with me. Uh, I, this was fun. It was right. It was. Yeah. It was yes, fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank Bye. you. Thanks. And that is the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you'd like this episode, please tell the Chilean fare dodgers, oyster card holders, and people in Estonia riding transit for free. As always, if you have the time, 
like, share, subscribe, or even a rating on Apple Podcasts will really help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who produces our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at spacingradio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, Ontario. Please keep an eye out for the winter issue of Spacing Magazine. It should be on shelves any moment now. I have a piece in it, appropriately, about the TTC signaling system. In the meantime, try not to miss the bus. Cheers. Cheers.